Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents Britain Goes to War An in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. Section 2 Background Part A The Golden Age Chapter 3 What would a Victorian statesman have discovered if he had truly wondered to himself where the empire had come from? Empire was not something invented by the Victorians. In fact, Britain possessed its so-called First Empire from the beginning of the 17th century and had been expanding elsewhere, most notably next door into Ireland, as early as the mid-12th century. Before it had been Britain, it had been England, and as England, English kings had once made grand claims on the throne of France. Any fan of the Hundred Years' War knows that at one point England occupied more of France than the actual French, and that because of this, claimed jurisdiction over the French crown. Lessons learned at this early stage were replicated further down the line in history, and up to the present day. Merchant companies in Calais, for example, that coastal enclave of France, which was the last continental possession that England evacuated, enjoyed the privilege of royal charters and the granting of monopolies that would later be enjoyed by the East India Company, the Hudson's Bay Company and the Levant Company, etc. One of the first navigation acts were introduced in 1381 with an aim towards effectively nationalising English waters along the Channel and claiming sovereignty over English seas. As a policy, this was repeatedly replicated over the centuries, with results that varied from war to serious economic boons, depending on the position of England in the balance of power. It is also worth remembering that English kings before the 10th century had been laying claims to high kingship over all of Britain. Edward the Confessor's Rex Totius Britanniae springs to mind if you're as nerdy about English history as I am. British monarchs and governments actively laid claim to vast swathes of territory when in reality their writ ran only in certain parts. A great example, again, is in Ireland, 
where Henry II claimed the Lordship of Ireland, despite only owning a small portion of what was then called the Pale, but in modern terms refers mostly to County Dublin and a few surrounding regions. Wales was another example. Edward II infamously waged war and established grandiose claims that took a long time to actually reflect the situation on the ground. Scotland was another less successful story, but the results were mostly the same. In all of these areas, English settlers were injected and attempted to represent their home crown's wishes once they lived there, at the expense of cooperation or the independence of the native population living there. England fortified the Pale with money and men, and it sent hundreds of marcher lords and built thousands of castles and forts in Wales to achieve this end. In some places, the legacies are still in place. Today, Northern Ireland exists as a separate state from the Republic of Ireland because of an English desire to pacify the one region where its writ had always had trouble running. To accommodate this in the early 1600s, Ulster was populated with hundreds of thousands of settlers in the space of a few decades, massively altering that region's demographic makeup and changing the future of Ireland forever. These Ulster plantations give examples of things to come for the English too. The dilemmas and tactics of later colonialism were as prevalent with the Irish, Scottish and Welsh as they became with the African, Chinese, Indian or American. England butted heads with these seemingly inferior peoples who were not as centralised as they were and who did not answer to an almighty monarch or ruler as they did. England's model established manor houses of grand opulence. It created an aristocracy and a landed gentry that dated back hundreds of years. Even at a basic level, it founded the agriculture and palatial estates that later became places for one to settle down in. In Ireland, still our most useful example, the situation was far more rugged. There were no real aristocrats because there was no real sense of money, only barter. There was no solid stone dwellings because the people of that island moved around so regularly in search of the best grazing and places to forage. This lack of a firm base prevented the need for any real towns or system of trade. It meant that the Irish rarely paid for food that they would eat together. This in turn meant that they rarely sat down for dinner at a table and thus, to the horror of the English, had no table manners. The Irish clans encouraged such alien practices as divorce and the recognition of children born out of wedlock. They had to be introduced to an English priest and his soothing ways for their own safety. The English couldn't help but see their societies as chaotic and uncivilised, yet they recognised at the same time that a certain pull was on the English settlers to go native. They were far away from their own lands and customs, after all. Therefore, injecting Englishness into Ireland became even more important to prevent any Englishman adopting the ways of the Irish barbarian. The Statute of Kilkenny in 1366, for example, outlawed Irish-style haircuts, a ruling which did not necessarily mean that gingers were illegal. What is important is that a precedent was established. The idea that England was superior in culture to Ireland, and that its civilization therefore had to trump whatever form of civilization the Irish had for the benefit of all. Compare this to the 19th century concept of imperialism, and aside from a few healthy additions like social Darwinism, outright racism, and the more nuanced inheritances of slavery and its legacies, there is little difference. The point is that, while it may not surprise you to learn that the Victorian era was not the first experiment in empire, you should take note of the fact that these same Victorians, with their haughty sense of self-importance and their exaggerated regard for their own morality, 
copied and pasted the core beliefs and principles of their far less cultured ancestors in order to justify their empire. Once the English were turned away from the continent, and once their final French enclave and remnant of the Norman era, Calais, was captured by France in 1558, English attention turned overseas. It was by no means an automatic or instant redirection of attentions. Most will remember from our coverage of the era in question that even once Elizabeth's forces triumphed against the Spanish odds in 1588, the country was still racked with debt and strain from foreign wars. In particular, once again, against Ireland. English settlements in Virginia and the earliest moves made by the East India Company in the early 1600s established an English presence in both North America and the Indian subcontinent. An interesting parallel, as though both regions came to reflect two very different shades of empire in the future, they both had their birth in the early stages of the reign of James I in the early 1600s. Competition in Europe, the united Habsburg families, the closer consolidation of French power, at least before its wars of religion, and the great achievements of Portuguese and Spanish merchants and explorers overseas, meant that England was constantly playing catch-up to its better prepared and more experienced rivals. Efforts were made thus to chip away at this well-established presence, rather than to actively compete with it. English claims did not centre on the idea that English naval forces or the English flag was more advanced or stronger than the Spanish. Instead, the English government accepted the fact that Philip II's Spain was the world power of its day. But instead of competing with it head-on, England would attack its most vulnerable points and establish colonies on the basis that, while Spain mistreated the American natives, English governance in the same area would constitute far more humane behaviour. Essentially, then, the English had a high horse and similarly high ambitions by the turn of the 17th century. These ambitions were aided by the fact that, to the north and Scotland, the Reformation had begun to make huge waves and negate the threat posed from there. In addition to this, the great-grandson of Henry II's older sister, James VI of Scotland, became James I of England and the VI of Scotland in 1603. Styling himself as King of Great Britain and Ireland, James seemed like a man ahead of his time, essentially predicting what would occur in a century's time with the Act of Union that made official England and Scotland's unification. With Scotland and England cooperating in a personal union, the island seemed stable enough to be able to look outside its immediate realm and to foreign lands. Not even Ireland appeared as much of an issue as before. In one of her final and arguably most costly acts as Queen, Elizabeth had made it her life's work to purge the rebellious elements from Ireland and conquer it for the crown. These wars against a united Irish series of clans, led by Hugh O'Neill in the late 1590s, taught the English many lessons, including not to underestimate their Irish foe, who handed them successive defeats until an ill-advised Spanish landing in Ireland gave English forces the opportunity to divide and conquer that they needed. With Ireland defeated, the pacification process could begin, and thus the aforementioned Plantations of Ulster came about, as English and Scottish settlers flooded into the north of Ireland, and the remaining Irish nobility fled to France in what was known as the Flight of the Earls. By 1610, it seemed, Ireland would no longer be a problem. Yet an important founding principle with respect to Ireland was learned at this stage in English history. 
Upon its defeat, and upon reflection of how much the whole thing had cost and how dangerous it had been to English security, a certain obsession over maintaining total English power over the whole of the island emerged. Included in this new principle was the idea that England, for the sake of its own security, required the control over the naval approaches to Ireland, so that Ireland could not be used as a stepping stone to invading England by its rivals in Europe. The fear of an enemy getting to England by way of Ireland was so acute at this time, having been exasperated by the Spanish landing there during the Anglo-Irish War, that English policy from this point until after the Second World War became one of securing Ireland at all costs against England's enemies, lest these same enemies fulfil the stepping stone nightmare and use the Irish relationship against England. The naval arm of England, later immortalised and exaggerated by historians and politicians in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, who claimed that England had always had a disposition for naval warfare and exploration, also entered its most acute phase under the reign of James I and VI. Partially out of necessity, since how else does one police its far-flung possessions that have little other force available to defend them, England's burgeoning navy actually gained more experience in piracy and plunder in its early years than it did in fighting huge naval battles and overcoming its rivals. Once again, it copied the tactics of its Spanish, Portuguese and even Dutch naval rivals, adopting the naval designs and strategies, as well as replicating the entrepreneurial explorer style of spreading empire that had been made famous by Columbus. Foreign sailors, looked over by the Spanish, Portuguese and Genoese authorities, became English champions. A man by the name of John Cabot was commissioned to find a newfound land where English men and women could spread themselves as early as the 1550s, but the enterprise really took off under James's reign. Learning from the actions of John Hawkins and his more famous protege, Sir Francis Drake, in the late 16th century, English sailors worth their salt were slightly encouraged to challenge the established predominance of Spain overseas, at gunpoint if necessary. The act of undermining the Spanish slave trade by intimidating its wholesalers, by disrupting the Spanish transportation of silver by stealing it, and of ruining Spanish settlements by cutting them off and making off with their resources, continued well into the 18th centuries. But until the English could claim to have an established empire of their own, they were content to pick away at those of their stronger and better equipped rivals. Rejecting the papal donation of 1494 that had supposedly divided the Atlantic between Spain and Portugal, English raiders, sailors and entrepreneurs alike all took to the seas to benefit from the overstretched nature of their rivals' empires. The 17th century was one of dramatic change in England and Scotland. The two states were united long enough to endure the ravages of the civil wars together, which also extended to Ireland. By their end, and under the rule of Oliver Cromwell, the Commonwealth that now stretched across the whole British Isles actually forced many to leave its shores, venturing abroad to America's young colonies in search of tolerance and a new beginning from the oppression and chaos of three decades of strife at home. Many of these would never return, but even without these individuals, Cromwell's Republic made huge leaps in military progress, handing the presumed naval superpower of the day, the Dutch, perhaps the worst defeat in their history. With the end of the Republic and the beginning of the Restoration era in 1660, efforts were made to supplant the Dutch once and for all with French aid. 
When this backfired and when the English Parliament revolted at the idea of supporting an all-conquering Catholic power against the underdog Protestant one, English allegiances slowly began to shift. The culmination of these changes was the Glorious Revolution of 1688, during which time William of Orange of the Netherlands became King William III of England and the de facto ruler of the Netherlands simultaneously. The results of this union continued to make waves into the early 18th century, when the combined forces of the now British and Dutch tackled the threat posed by Louis XIV of France for the final time. As I've said before, the events of the 17th century, how they overlap, how they create such important precedents for the future of Britain and determine British policy at home and abroad, are worthy of a Netflix series, all by themselves. But since our scope looks beyond their events, we must continue our analysis beyond that time, tempting though it is to dwell on it. The War of the Spanish Succession that ended in 1714 gave Britain the right to penetrate the Spanish-dominated slave markets, the so-called asiento, or right to sell slaves to Spanish America. As John Darwin in his book Unfinished Empire expertly noted, the main goal for the British at this time was money-making. The Scottish had been thoroughly deflated by their attempts at empire-making in America, Indeed, part of the agreement that had led and facilitated the union of England and Scotland's crowns in 1707 was the provision that England would commit to pay much of Scotland's debt, which ran in the millions of pounds. Britain also established important principles of control in the western Mediterranean, forever puncturing, as John Darwin put it, the Spanish hold over its own trade by occupying Gibraltar and Menorca and not letting go. Britain's Indian ventures were expanding apace with its American possessions, which continued to suck in settlers from the British Isles despite the presence of a more stable government by the early 18th century. That newfound land that John Cabot had once searched for now constituted the most patriotically British part of America, as Newfoundland, with important monopolies in the Hudson Bay companies and further exploration leading to great economic breakthroughs in the fur markets of Rupert's land. There wasn't a single vision of empire that led this course. Britain continued in the early 18th century to behave like all other European powers, with overseas possessions and ambition. Yet, as its colonies and companies expanded, the knock-on effects of a greater volume of goods, and the greater appreciation for goods in new markets, opened the way for more money to be made and thus invested in the whole enterprise. Built on the backs of slaves, this empire wasn't necessarily built in an absence of mind, in its mind was money, but London never made any attempt to define to its people the reasons why empire was continually pursued. This point is important because the similarities between the empire of the early 18th and late 19th centuries is the lack of benefit experienced by the average citizen. The poorest of the poor in Glasgow, Edinburgh, Bristol, London, Newcastle, Reading or even Dublin did not see or feel the huge benefits or profits made by these companies, individuals or armies that carried the British flag. Their existence consisted of scratching out a living in a daily struggle to keep a roof over their heads and to keep food on the family table. It's not a particularly uplifting aspect of empire, and and admittedly we won't be spending a huge amount of time on it, but it is worth remembering that the masses in the background were just as disregarded in 1718 as 1817, and even perhaps 1917, 
true reform would not come until after the catastrophes of the early 20th century. For some time, London had been one of the foremost warehouses of the world's most exotic goods. Just like the Dutch had done with Amsterdam in the past, in the mid to late 18th century, the importance of London as the British and European centre of entrepot trade became more nuanced, with every expansion made and every war won. Navigation laws as early as 1696 ruled that goods from the Empire, whatever their origin, must be shipped to London before they could be shipped anywhere else. This would enrich the home islands at the expense of the periphery, but it also meant that Britain could claim economic mastery and point to true wealth as the result of its possessions. These same positions could grumble that their own interests were not being respected and that they were missing out on key benefits enjoyed by Britain, but for a time these grumbles did not manifest themselves in especially troubling ways. Then came the revolt of the Thirteen Colonies. The revolt and separation of North America's 13 colonies tore a hole in the British perception of its empire and what it was for. For years these colonies had sucked in settlers from far and wide, giving a new shape to the empire by also taking in European settlers too. Now this bed of immigration, and one of the greatest symbols of Britain's presence in the New World, was gone. Worse than that, the divorce had been messy, and had dragged all of Britain's rivals in to support the Americans and further handicap the British war effort. It was by far the worst imperial disaster that London had ever experienced, yet there was light at the end of the tunnel. While she had lost her greatest imperial treasure in America, she was already investing in another, more straightforwardly economic one in India. The Seven Years' War, wherein Britain had fought and defeated France in America and India, granted Britain the position of dominance in both regions once the war ended. It cost a bomb, of course, and was one of the major reasons for the American divorce, because it required such a huge amount of tax to pay back the war debt. But still, its results by the early 18th century were such that Britain was the primary European power in India. And this was just as well. The French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars required major feats of war for Britain to survive and then defeat Napoleonic France convincingly by mid-June 1815, but they also required more money than Britain had ever spent on a war up to that point. In the Congress of Vienna, the post-war settlement designed to prevent the rise of any future Napoleons in Europe ever again, as well as penalise France and reset the European balance of power, Britain sought the highest price and received the richest reward. As an event in early modern Europe, the Congress of Vienna was incredibly significant. Not only was it the first time that official representatives from different states met together, before this messages were simply pinged between relevant capitals, but it effectively established the concert of Europe for the next 100 years. Almost 99 years to the day and month that the Congress of Vienna folded up, on the 2nd of August 1815, when custody, if you want to call it that, of Napoleon Bonaparte was given to Britain, Britain would be on the verge of world war again. Statesmen at that time in early August 1914 would look back over the century that had just passed and wonder at the power of the Congress of Vienna, and how for all this time it had prevented war between all of Europe. Of course, the true reasons that peace had been both preserved in the past and were now coming to an end were far more complex. 
Ever since the victory at Trafalgar in 1805, Britain had been in the unique position of maritime supremacy over all of its rivals. There was a small blip on the radar with the repeated fears of a French invasion, of course, but once these had dissipated, Britain could relish in the fact, not enjoyed for certain until this point, that its navy surpassed the power, resources and ability of all others in Europe. It meant that Britain now had the opportunity to spread its wings without overtly considering its naval security. Its very power was attested to by its incredible feats of warfare as the Napoleonic Wars drew to a close. Most remember little of the War of 1812 today, but the fact that Britain managed to divert enough resources to burn the capital of its American enemy to the ground while engaging in a fierce European struggle against Napoleon at the same time should demonstrate the British position. We tend to forget as well that British power was being projected in so many other directions too. The late 18th and early 19th centuries constituted the founding phases of the establishment of New Zealand and Australia. In time, these white dominions would represent a distinct aspect of the British Empire. Having witnessed the old balance of power overthrown in Europe, with Dutch, Spanish, Prussian, Austrian and Russian power all coming to terms with the need to rebuild following their losses to the French, it was Britain that truly seized the moment and made the most of its victory. With no old enemy or new rival to stand in its way, London could focus on its empire at last without fear for security. And London made the most of this opportunity by investing resources into Australia and New Zealand, once considered shortcuts to China and India, but now viewed as valuable ends in their own right. The history of both could not be more different despite their close proximity. Although Dutch explorers caught sight of the land first in 1606, they made little effort to find out more and simply coined the landmass New Holland, with no real inkling of how large it was or where it led. Over the years, other Dutch explorers landed at various points around the island, still unwilling or unable to consider actually colonising it. And it wasn't until Captain James Cook arrived on the east coast of Australia, naming it New South Wales and claiming it for Britain in 1770, that things really began to change. Cook was a passionate cartographer, and would go on to chart and map New Zealand and parts of Hawaii, only to be killed by a hostile Hawaiian tribe in 1779. Cook's legacy in Australia was profound, because whereas the Dutch had been content to name the region and note its location and move on, the American Revolution six years after Cook's discovery necessitated a new imperial distraction to make up for its loss. Only clinging to the east for a time and not claiming Western Australia until 1828, the previous behaviour of British imperialists, chief among them James Cook, had established an unfortunate precedent for the Aboriginals already living there. When New Zealand became officially British, per a treaty signed with Maori chiefs in 1840, subsequent land transfers were done by organising payment and through the agreement of terms. Traders and ambitious missionaries had founded the New Zealand Company in the 1830s, and by the end of that decade, London was faced with demands from its controllers to allow the buying of land and the settlement of areas in the mysterious islands to the southeast. London implemented a new deal to prevent a breakdown of order, whereby immigrants to New Zealand could only purchase land that the British government had already purchased from the Maori beforehand. This meant that the kind of private land purchases, which had previously caused so much problems with the natives in North America, would be forbidden. This way London could keep track of its expansion. It had learned its lesson 
from before and besides, it did not have to fear the ambitions of other European powers taking over because it had already laid claim to the region. Although in practice the threat of force and the eagerness of the Maori chiefs to sell their lands, combined with the usual doses of fraud, speculation and racial antagonism, accelerated the whole process, it was still a far better deal than that endured in Australia, from where those ambitious Sydney merchants and missionaries had come. Captain Cook had been so confident of his success in getting to Eastern Australia before anyone else on the 22nd of August 1770, that he had felt able to claim the whole eastern coast by the name of New South Wales, together with all the bays, harbours and rivers upon said coast. Though he had spied some natives, whom Cook called Indians, because apparently all natives were at this stage, and noticed the smokes from the fires in the distance, Cook perhaps didn't care enough to investigate, or maybe he simply believed that there existed in the region no significant chiefs or sovereign powers for him to negotiate with. With momentous consequences, as John Darwin noted, Cook recorded the region of eastern Australia as uninhabited land, empty, and ripe for immigration by British settlers. It contained no king, no local ruler that deserved his respect, and the people that existed there already did not warrant mention or consideration. Cook presided over a fine ceremony that claimed eastern Australia in the name of Great Britain, and, leaving a Union Jack behind and sailing for new discoveries, believed his work was done. Though Eastern Australia was now, all unknowing, a British possession, its inhabitants were doomed to face a unique kind of British treatment, a kind of arrangement with the British in which they did not officially exist, and thus were afforded no rights. By the time of rampant settlement, when the business with New Zealand had been sorted out and many Britons travelled there to establish new lives, Australia had practically shed its penal colony roots. Once again, the thirst to gain rights over new land in places that they arrived became an occupation of British migrants in Australia. In all other colonies, with varying degrees of respect, the natives were afforded the right to negotiate with the British and sell the land with some consideration afforded to them. Australia, on the other hand, was in the incredible position of being officially empty, as Cook had declared, and thus there was no need to buy land off anybody. The British migrants could simply move in as they pleased. Inevitable problems arose once Aboriginal resistance began. London could not argue that this resistance was not taking place, But if they placed these Aboriginals under British law in order to punish their insolence, then surely the Aboriginal problem would be solved. Many insisted it was not so simple. To make the Aboriginals subject to British law meant that they would be entitled to protection under such laws, and this was a caveat that aggressively expanding settlers couldn't afford. If Aboriginals were British subjects, then surely they had a right to their land, a right to hold property and rights to a fair trial, that they could sue those that had stolen their land. Faced with enough of these cases, strong and full of evidence as they surely were, the shaky legal basis on which the white settlement rested would begin to unravel. Incredibly, it was easier simply to ignore their plight and rights as much as possible, and to push the unfortunate Aboriginals further and further away into the more unhospitable or unexplored reaches of Australia, so that they were out of sight and out of mind. Because the invasion of white settlers continued apace as Australia became more and more settled, 
it became far easier to outnumber the Aboriginals and push them to the fringes of society. Essentially, Aboriginals were outside of the law. The law did not apply to them or the land that they squatted on. To grant them the rights to sell land to settlers, as had been done elsewhere, would have thrown up a whole host of inconvenient truths. When a Tasmanian group of settlers bought land from an Aboriginal tribe around Melbourne, the case was thrown out on the grounds that privately buying up land was forbidden. A similar argument to that used in New Zealand and previously in North America. Yet the real reason for opposing the sale was the underlying fact that so contradicted the entire basis upon which white settlement was based. If land could be purchased from Aboriginals, then it stood to reason that those same Aboriginals must have owned the land in the first place. If that fact were conceded, as John Darwin noted, other Aboriginals would come forward with tales of land grabs and offers to sell or buy back their land, and the whole lie that white Australia had survived and nourished itself upon would be plainly exposed. Once again, as with the other regions of the British Empire, the white settler came first. Though this familiar pattern was well practiced by the time of the mid-19th century, it would be most famously and vigorously imposed on another continent that had thus far attracted little European attention. Africa. Despite its mass, its surely abundant riches and its alluring sounds, smells and peoples, by the beginning of the 1870s, Africa's interior was literally a blank, empty space in the minds of Europe. The outer fringes were known and occupied for their strategic importance for trade and defence, and parties had scouted inland, but nothing had really been sought in terms of proper geographic information, detailed analyses of the population, or a full survey of its resources. There were huge myths, understandably amusing to us today, that surrounded the region too. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Untold riches were said to reside in the undiscovered city of El Dorado, while great fears abounded of a massively powerful empire at the centre of the continent, reaping the benefits of the Nile source where it was based, drinking in that wealth, 
training armies of soldiers, just waiting for a new enemy to poke through the bush and find them, opening a Pandora's box in the process. Finding the source of the Nile River did become an obsession for many an explorer in the late 19th century. And under the guise of spreading the commendable three C's of Christianity, commerce and civilization, scouting parties led by determined young men received grants from similarly determined young monarchs to find these riches, to tap this wealth, and to do so in the name of the scramble for Africa. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.